Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Right now, the new snack committee has a report. Okay, so what we did was... Wait, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, oh, we ground up some raw grains and roots and we made a paste. And then we heated up some mammoth oil and we dropped the paste in it. And, well, look how it came out. Aw, that's all nice and brown. I like it. We call it a flute. A flute is already something else. You should call it a a bear claw. That's a good name. Take a bite. Mmm. This is really tasty. Pass the rest of them around to everybody else. Mm, There are no others. We only made one. Why? Nobody told us to make a lot of them. You made one snack. Well, you know, it's way better than anything monkeys could do. I just, people don't listen. I just got through saying we're dropping the whole better than monkeys theme. I forgot. What I want you to do is go back and make a lot of these and have different flavors in them. Some uh, berry, maybe some honey, some, oh, get some sprinkles on them. You want us to sprinkle on the flutes before we eat them? Not that kind of sprinkles. And they're not called flutes. And now I've got one of those cluster headaches coming on. So talk among yourself about these donuts. That's a good name for them. And now the inventor of the blownut, don't ask, Colin McEnroe. One of the ironies that occurred to me in the parking lot a couple of hours ago is that we're doing a show today about donuts, and it's produced by essentially the one person that I know professionally who is routinely able to resist donuts because one of the things about donuts is like if someone brings them into work everybody no matter what you you know <laughs> even if they've been told by their doctor that they can't ever eat a carbohydrate again everybody it, there's it's just a free pass right you can just somebody brought a box of donuts you can eat one except the Betsy Kaplan who produced the show she's the one person who doesn't eat the donuts because she has this alarmingly uh, severe sense of being a good person um, which is not really shared by anybody else here. But we wanted to do a show about donuts in typical fashion, not so much how to make donuts or, I don't know, or like cronut phases. We wanted to talk about the psychological and emotional and I think historic significance of donuts. And that's what we're going to do today. And so, boy, do we have the right guest to anchor this conversation. It's Michael Crondall, food writer, culinary historian, artist, and the author of many books, including The Donut, History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin. So there are many aficionados of donuts um, embedded in popular culture, but since most of us are terrible lowbrows, we probably think first of this person. So you like donuts, eh? Mm-hmm. Well, have all the donuts in the world! <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand it. James Coco went mad in 15 minutes. That, of course, is Lawrence Olivier in Coriolanus. No, it's not. It's Homer Simpson. So, Michael, there's a way in which Homer Simpson embodies with his body, some of, or one set of stereotypes about donuts, which is that there's somehow or other kind of, they're, they're a proletarian food. Maybe everybody enjoys them, but they reach us at the lowest and most id-based level uh, of our comestible existence. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. 
Well, I, I, I prefer to think of them as the egalitarian pastry that every American can enjoy and uh, a pastry that has been around basically since the founding of the Republic and has always been very much the leveling kind of a pastry. Uh, it becomes really, really popular during the First World War when everybody can have a pastry that's fried. They can have it day in and day out, whereas in ancient Europe, you ate donuts on holidays. Mm. You ate them on special occasions because they're actually expensive to make. You need a lot of fat, which used to be expensive. Sugar, flour, all those things used to be expensive. So they would have them for holidays. But in America, of course, you can have holiday food every single day to our detriment sometimes. Right, and they sort of become the opposite in a way. Uh, you know, rather than being this kind of luxury item, it's sort of like if you want to make everybody happy at work, you know, for $10 or less, you know, bring in a dozen donuts. Um, right, but all those things that used to be, you know, luxury items have now become everyday items, and they are leading us down the path of perdition, as uh, Homer Simpson would, uh, I'm sure, characterize it. And has there always been something that we could associate with the concept of a donut? I mean, I, I feel like every culture, for example, has some kind of dumpling or some kind of dough wrapped around some kind of filling dumpling kind of thing. Is there, has there always been a donut? Right. Well, I mean, something fried has been around ever since people figured out frying, right? So, I mean, there were fried dough bits in the medieval Middle East. There were fried dough bits in Renaissance Italy um, and so on and so on. The donut as we know it probably originates in the UK, probably originates in an area called Hertfordshire because that's where the oldest recipes come from, recipes from the sort of the mid 18th century. And as you may or may not know, uh, a lot of the uh, first Puritans came from that neck of the woods of the UK. And whereas in the UK, they were really, really obscure. By the time they got here, they became quite popular. And they were nuts. I mean, when the, the original things were about the size of a walnut, thus fried nuts or, you know, dough nuts. Gotcha. And so they were like more like what we now call a donut hole, in other words. That, exactly, that, yeah. exactly. They were just like that, yeah. Do we know at what point the hole in the donut became kind of a thing? Did someone invent it? So these original donuts were made with a yeast dough. They were basically bread dough. You put a little bit of shower, uh, sugar in it, a little bit of egg, and you get something that's a little bit, you know, uh, more tender than a regular piece of fried dough. And in America, where we're all in a hurry, uh, they figured out that you could take cake dough made with some sort of chemical leavener, sort of predecessors to baking soda and baking powder, mix it into the cake, and then it would rise very quickly. And so they started to make these cake donuts instead of the old-fashioned risen donuts. But the problem with these is they have a lot of sugar in them. So if you cook them as long as you need to cook them to cook them all the way through, they burn. So somebody somewhere along the way thought, hey, if we get rid of the middle, which is the part that doesn't cook, they'll cook evenly all the way through. And they had a model for this. There were various kinds of cookies called jumbles at the time that were also ring-shaped or torus-shaped, just like a donut. So maybe 1820s, 1830s, somewhere along the way. And I, I should tell you that I am 116th Wampanoag, and I, we, I was told by my <laughs> great-grandfather in our sweat lodge that we had invented the hole in the donut. Was my great-grandfather incorrect? Uh, your grandfather was as incorrect as the person who claims that there was a sea captain from New Hampshire who invented the donut when he was on board ship and 
discovered, oh, if I cut out the middle, I will make the donut. There is a wonderful story, though, about your great-great-great-grandfather. In the 1940s, there was an obsession with donut dunking, which actually connects to this idea of kind of the everyman pastry, this idea of everybody wanting to feel ordinary or working class because it used to be that dunking donuts was considered kind of déclassé. In the 1940s, everybody's dunking donuts. There is a dunking donut dunking society. People dunk donuts standing upside down on top of New York City skyscrapers. And the Donut League assembles a grave conference at a hotel in Manhattan to determine who exactly invented the donut hole. I should say that this is just at the beginning of the first, uh, Second World War when um, Hitler is basically running across Europe with the Blitzkrieg. But in New York, there's an important conference to determine the origin of the donut hole. And on the one hand, you have the Indian origin story, which is that a native youth is chasing down a settler woman and shooting an arrow which apparently pierces her donut. We're talking about, of course, her pastry in this case. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other story, which is this 16-year-old sailor from New Hampshire who invents the donut hole because he's on a ship. The hole in both of these stories is that the pastry with the hole had already been invented by some 15, 20 years before the captain, who was at that point a little kid, basically a kid, supposedly invented the donut hole. I don't know. This sounds like the kind of thinking that led up to my family's land being turned into a golf course. But I'm going to just let that ride for now. I I think one of the things that we have to say is that just as Proust has this incredible flood of memory and emotion triggered by a pastry, by a Napoleon, there's a way in which we associate the donut with some kind of primal experience. It's the thing we were doing. So, uh, Jonathan, if we could hear uh, clip number two, I think we have a pretty good example of this. There was a little shack at Sound View in Old Line. And I was allowed to ride my bike for two or three blocks over early in the morning before they opened and wait patiently on this gravel and shell path in front of it for them to swing open the wooden doors where you had already been drooling because of the smells of those freshly made donuts. And I'd buy a couple of bags to take home to our cottage and eat about six on the way home, thereby ruining my breakfast but making the day pretty pleasant overall. All right. That man, by the way, is in witness protection. That's why his voice sounds like that. No, actually, we set up a special voicemail line so that people could call in with their own Proustian donut recollections, thinking like two people would do it. But instead, we had this incredible flood of people doing it. So, Michael um, Crondall, there's two things going on there at minimum. So let's let's uh, unpack them. One of them is he's describing a place called Sound View, which is an old lime, which really did have these famous donuts. I, I beheld them and ate them. They were these... Uh, my recollection of them was there were these kind of glazed donuts that would sit in this almost coagulated, oily, sugary, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure what, but people really liked them a lot. Uh, it's like Garrison Keillor's thing about the dark stains that indicate freshness. And so you, you've got that. And then you've got childhood, right? I mean, there's a way in which we, ha- we imprint on the donut. I think we imprint on all these things. I mean, we imprint on sugar, right? Because, and one of the attractions of a donut is, if you think of a donut, it is the perfect space food. It's got, you know, the fat, it's got the sugar, and it's got the carbohydrate. Somewhere in there, there's some protein, but I can't quite figure that one out. (laughs) It is starvation food if you need to be stuck on your way to school, for example, in the cold winter's day. So yes, primal, definitely primal. 
And and I think also with certain activities, with certain recreational activities, uh, things that you're doing that a donut goes with. Uh, let's hear that uh, the voicemail uh, number three about the Krispy Kremes. My memories are of childhood birthday parties. They were all the same. Every kid from Crestland Heights Grammar School in Mountain Brook, Alabama, had the exact same party. Our parents drove us to the other side of town to the Rainbow Roller Rink, and it was torture for me. <laughs> well, I still am the kid who could only skate to the left while holding on to the rail. But if I hung in there long enough, there was a big reward. We all gathered at the end, and out came the giant flat white boxes with green and red lettering full of glazed crispy cream donuts. And we washed those hot, greasy, sugar-coated fried hunks of dough down with Coca-Cola, not Coca-Cola. We were in Alabama. All right, so a couple of other things going on there, too, Michael, including regionalism, right? Uh, I mean, whether we're talking about Tim Hortons in Canada or uh, or Krispy Kreme in the South or the Soundview Donut of Old Lyme, there's a way in which donuts and place get wound up together. And I think that's because of the freshness, because a donut has to be... You know, it has to have that goût de terroir, which in this particular case is grease. <laughs> because these donut chains tend to be regional, right? Some are a bit more national now, but Krispy Kreme has long been associated with the South, Tim Hortons with Canada, um, Dunkin' Donuts obviously with New England, there's Winchell's on the West Coast. So people grew up with these particular chains and have these memories. One of the funny things about that, though, is this sort of childhood connection to the donut before there were all these chains, donuts were very much associated with mom, kind of mom and apple pie. And so during the First World War, when uh, the Salvation Army went over to Europe, they made donuts for the doughboys. No connection to donuts, apparently, that term. But anyway, they were making donuts for the doughboys. And there's all these descriptions of the doughboys would look through the hole in the donut and see their mother frying up a fresh batch of donuts on the other side. So they had that mom, apple pie, donut association, especially for New Englanders. While we're talking about World War I, it's the second time you've mentioned it, we have to talk about just donuts and the military here. We're talking about donuts in general today. And so let's hear a voicemail 16, and then uh, Michael and I will come back and talk about it. My husband and I were both in the Marines, and I was stationed at 29 Palms, which is a base that is basically in the middle of the desert. My husband came to visit me while I was stationed there, and we decided to get breakfast one morning. And since there's pretty much no place to go except one donut shop, we ended up stopping there. Twelve-plus years later, we can still remember what the donuts there tasted like. And it doesn't look like they're as good as they used to be by looking on their reviews online, but it kind of doesn't matter what they're like now because all I can think about is how those donuts tasted back when we were stationed there. We're talking to Michael Crandall. Uh, his book is The Donut History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin. So you can sort of figure out pretty easily that donuts and the military make sense together. Uh, militaries run on morale. There's a way in which donuts are, as you just said, comfort food associated with mom. And, and they lift people's spirits. People are really happy when they get a donut. But they really are, once again, braided pretty tightly into military history. You've mentioned World War One two times, but I think it's time to talk uh, about uh, the most famous famous military incident, perhaps ever, involving donuts, and that does play, take place in World War I. You want to just pick up that story? 
Sure. Well, uh, there's multiple stories with World War One, but I think the one you're referring to is the Great Donut Raid of 1918. Yeah. Just for Easter, the Salvation Army had filled a truck full of donuts and a few apple pies as well, but it was predominantly donuts. And it had gotten stuck in between the American lines and the German lines in the no-man's zone. And the Germans, now, I would like to think that the Germans knew it was full of donuts, but the real story may be that they actually thought there were armaments in it. So the Germans are bombing this donut truck. You know, thousands and thousands of pounds of armaments uh, would go down the first day. And in those days, the daily papers would send in several dispatches a day, and so there would be multiple versions of the New York Times. And you can actually follow the donut battle kind of morning edition to evening edition to morning edition to evening edition of the Times because it was reported every single time. The first night, the Americans sent out a guy on a motorcycle. So he whipped by 50 miles an hour past the truck just to make sure that, you know, he wouldn't be shot just to determine that it was still there. And apparently it was. And so now they had 100 volunteers in the middle of the night, 100 um, American soldiers, go out to try to rescue the donut truck. No go. They just couldn't do it. The next day, the Germans bombed it. And the following day, they bombed it. And eventually, the Germans sent up a bunch of trial balloons to figure out exactly so they could triangulate exactly where the truck was and eventually blew this thing to smithereens. And apparently, this the story just went across all of the American lines and everybody was devastated even as they were being showered by donut crumbs. <laughs> so war is hell, basically. Even the donuts don't come out intact. All right, so we're going to take a little break here um, and we're going to go out with a little story uh, also from our voicemail project. We'll be back with more of Michael and another guest also after the proverbial this. There was a kid in my class named Chip who was super goofy. But he always had a smile on his face, and he was always friendly, and he was always failing Spanish. When midterm time came around, he really needed some help. He offered to take me down to the local donut shop for donut and coffee after dinner one night to help him study. When we arrived at the donut shop, I saw the look on the woman's face turn from smiling and friendly to not so smiling and friendly. We ordered coffee and a donut. She told him the total, and I watched in horror as he pulled a bag of pennies from his pocket and counted them out one by one. Clearly, this was not the first time he had been to that donut shop. Donuts, 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 donuts. Oh, now don't you start telling me I shouldn't dunk. Of course you shouldn't. You don't know how to do it. Dunking's an art. Don't let it soak so long. A dip and flock in your mouth. You gotta hang there too long and get soft and fall off. It's all a matter of timing. Oh, I'll write a book about it. <laughs> Thanks, Professor. Mm. Just to you. Twenty millions and you don't know how to dump. I'd change places with a plumber's daughter any day. All right. That, of course, is uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert uh, in a very famous scene from a very famous movie. It happened one night. We're talking about donuts today with Michael Crondall, a food writer, culinary historian, artist, and the author of many books, including The Donut, History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin. Also joining us now is Miranda Popke, freelance writer whose work appears in numerous publications, including The Hairpin, New York Magazine, and The New Yorker. She's going to be talking about an essay for Extra Crispy about Dunkin' Donuts. But before we get 
get there. So, um, Michael, I think one thing that happens, so we, we talked about World War One. There's another, then there's another World War, World War Two. More donuts get eaten. People get even more hooked on donuts. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like coming out of that war, there's the beginning of the notion of the donut shop as something that, an entrepreneurial young man maybe coming out with some a GI Bill, small business loans or, or, or whatever. could It might be a way to get in. Opening a really fancy restaurant might be too hard. and You know, opening up a gas station, there's maybe a little bit more of a buy-in in terms of the kinds of hardware that you, you need there. Opening a donut shop maybe is a way that you can begin an economic life. So does that, does that start to happen? It actually starts to happen after the First World War, believe it or not, because it's then when uh, donuts really become popular. What happens more after the Second World War is you get the chain starting up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you get Krispy Kreme expanding. Krispy Kreme predates the Second World War, but it sort of expands afterwards. You get Dunkin' Donuts in 1950, and then that expands. So you get this idea of the franchising. But yeah, I mean, there were loans as well as, you know, the GI Bill wasn't just for people to go to school. There were also also all sorts of uh, small business loans associated with it as well. And yeah, donuts, donut shops were a very, very easy way to get in. I feel but also like, the car came in. Yeah. You know, that, that was huge. Yes, right. So you can drive to the donut shop, get your donuts, uh, maybe take your donuts back home. And I feel like one of the things that has steadily stayed the case is that, for example, I think there's a couple of Dunkin' Donut franchises around here that are run by people I think who might be Nepalese. I have to re- rely on my son South for Asians. Yeah. yeah, South Asians yeah. And, um, and East Asians, right? There's a way in which the uh, new class of immigrants could maybe come over and take over this thing that seems like it's fundamentally almost literally white bread American. It's, again, regional. I mean, in Southeast, sorry, in um, California, it's mostly Southeast Asians who've been involved in uh, donut making. In the Chicago Midwest area, it's almost all exclusively South Asians. In New England, it's kind of more mixed. But it's a way that someone with no money who can depend on the family to work for no money can get a, get their toe into the door of the American dream. All right. So, Miranda Popke, I think you were puzzled by something that I'm a little bit puzzled by at times, too. I don't particularly like Dunkin' Donuts very much. I don't like their coffee. I have other coffee preferences. I'm not that interested in their donuts. If I want a donut, I'm going to get one from a fairly some kind of idiosyncratic, locally owned, one shop, one owner kind of place. So I don't have any real relationship with them. And I'm also vaguely annoyed by the fact that they just seem to open up in every, you know, every 15 seconds there's a new one in some space that I wouldn't have believed could be converted into a Dunkin' Donuts. But the reason that that last thing is true is that the people really like Dunkin' Donuts a lot. People who are not me like the the coffee, they like the donuts, they like something. So you tried to figure out what that something was. What did you find out? So, yeah, like you said, I I started with sort of the same question. I'm from California. Dunkin' Donuts doesn't really have a a toehold in this state in the same way that it does in the Northeast. And so I spent a few hours just interviewing men. They were all men who were just sort of sitting around either before work or maybe they had the day off on a morning at the original Dunkin' Donuts location, which is in Quincy, Massachusetts. And what I discovered is that one 
these men were willing to acknowledge that they spent a lot of time at Dunkin' Donuts, but they couldn't really explain it either. And two, that they had spent ultimately so much time at various Dunkin' Donut locations that it had become sort of unbeknownst even to them, pretty central in their lives. I think part of it is just the ubiquity of the locations. You can't really go even a couple miles in the greater Boston area without finding, without running across a Dunkin' Donuts. The place had become really sort of integrated into their lives in a way that really surprised me. I interviewed a guy who grew up sort of right around the time when there were a few nuclear disasters, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and his mother said, you know, in the event of a nuclear disaster, let's all meet at the Dunkin' Donuts. And obviously Dunkin' Donuts (laughs) is not a place that offers any kind of defense against uh, nuclear fallout, but it was a place that they felt comfortable in. It was a place they felt really safe in. And actually, after the Boston Marathon bombing, that was where he and his mother met up just to, you know, confirm that both of them were safe, which I found really charming and sort of inexplicable. And I think this guy found the story charming also, but also sort of inexplicable. It's just something that's wound its way into the lives of of people in the Northeast in a way that I think that they themselves find sort of puzzling. Well, you know, Miranda, there's some kind of law of management, uh, which the name of which I don't know, but it sort of basically makes the argument that the easier it is to do something and the lower the, the bar, the lower the threshold is to do something, the more that it gets done. And so like an example would be when Xerox machines or photocopy machines came to be, people just made photocopies of everything because prior to that it had been so hard to do it, but it was suddenly very, very easy to do. And I feel like there's something about that with donuts too. Like the donut isn't as expensive as a sandwich. It doesn't take as long to consume. So it's a sort of low-risk proposition. You could go into a donut shop and try to strike up a conversation with maybe some of the regulars that you know there. But, you know, if you want to get out, you haven't spent very much money, and you can eat the donut pretty fast. I think you're absolutely right, and I think that this also speaks to sort of what I understand as a, as a class separation, at least in the greater Boston area, between people who go to Starbucks and people who go to Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts is just, uh, the, the price is a little bit lower. The coffee is a little bit less strong. Um, and the sizes are small, medium, large. I didn't actually know that people were still really annoyed about tall, grande, and venti, but I heard a lot about that at the at the Dunkin' Donuts location where I I spent some time. So, yeah, I I think that the low sort of investment is really a factor as well, yeah. And, you know, Michael, some of that might be we covet the familiar. And so one of the reasons, yeah, people maybe don't like going into a coffee shop where there's a sign called Venti is that's not as familiar to them. That doesn't make any sense. And one of the things that we're hearing again and again on this show is that people are also very attached to their regional donut chain. So the woman from Alabama on the voicemail, it's Krispy Kremes. And up here, it's Dunkin' Donuts. And if you go to Japan, I think there's still Mr. Donuts or whatever. But it's one of the things that maybe donuts do, or Tim Hortons would be another really good example. It's just very familiar. Familiar, they're not going to throw too many curveballs at you? I, I think that's right. But, uh, and of course, I'm one of the people who thinks that a venti, calling a coffee a venti is absolutely absurd and pretentious. There's been a lot of written about exactly this phenomenon, specifically with Tim Hortons, because Tim Hortons is such a kind of a national icon in Canada. And think about the alternatives, though. I mean, if you are going to gather in a spot that's affordable, where are you going to go? Mm-hmm. The fast food places are designed to get you in and out of there as quickly as possible. Teenagers these days seem to, as best as I can figure out, go to the Starbucks, but so that becomes kind of their Dunkin' Donuts. 
But people of a certain age, of a certain class, they really don't have an alternative where they can hang out for an hour or two and nurse a cup of coffee. Where, where else can you meet other people in a suburban situation like that? All right. So, and, and I think it's easy for somebody like me to be a, a glib cultural anthropologist about this, but uh, quite frequently there are emotional sunk costs in these relationships. Let's hear a voicemail uh, number one. I was in Vancouver for work, and I stopped into a donut shop as I wanted to write condolence cards to my grandmother and my mother. My grandfather died, um, and I ordered an Earl Grey donut, which I had never had before. And I sat and I wrote, and I burst out crying, and I was sitting in this coffee shop by myself, alone in the city, but not feeling lonely because there were people all around me eating donuts. In a way, Miranda, this is a story that's maybe not entirely unfamiliar to you as you were going around gathering stories of Dunkin' Donuts and figuring out why why people were there. I know you you had one especially heartrending one, right? A man who'd lost his daughter. Yes, that's right. I spoke to a gentleman who was having a coffee and doing a donut and uh, doing a word search, uh, and I sort of engaged him in conversation. And it turned out that his daughter had worked at Dunkin' Donuts and that also the, the following day would be the one-year anniversary of her um, death from a heroin overdose. I mean, he was planning to commemorate that anniversary. It was a very, um, it, it was a very emotional moment, I think, for me as I was just interviewing this gentleman because he clearly had experienced a real trauma. I think that trauma was in some way linked in his in his to Dunkin' Donuts, a place that he had been going for years and a place that his daughter had worked. And the fact that, you know, on the day before, that's where he found himself, that seemed to me quite significant. We should say that here in uh, Hartford, we now have a baseball stadium, a rather expensive baseball stadium called Dunkin' Donuts Park. So we're uh, no stranger to Dunkin' Donuts and to their typeface and color scheme. Michael, I know in your book, The Donut, you did do some investigation into the pink and orange. What did you find out? <laughs> well, the investigation involved me interviewing my mother-in-law purely by coincidence. It turns out that my mother-in-law was working on the Dunkin' Donuts account and was designing the stores, not the typeface, and walked in on the people who were designing the typeface. And they were had everything is sort of browns and tans. And she looked at them and said, who wants to have a brown and tan logo for anything? And she said, you know what you should do? You should go with my daughter's favorite colors, which are orange and pink. Every time I do a birthday party for her, she needs to have orange and pink. So this would be my wife. So on my wife's inspiration and my mother-in-law's intervention, we now have pink and orange Dunkin' Donuts, although they've changed the color a little bit over the last few decades. I don't know whether that's an impressive story or one of... It's sort of like Rupert Hine, who wrote the uh, Pina Colada, Rupert Holmes, who wrote the Pina Colada song, which was a big hit, but it also really annoys people. And it, I feel that same way about the Dunkin' Donuts cover colors. It's very impressive, but also they're they're there's too they're around too much and they're in my face too much. All right, so we have to say goodbye to Miranda Popke, but people should read uh, her uh, story about finding out more. We don't we can't possibly cover everything that she <laughs> learned, so uh, people should uh, read more uh, of Miranda's reporting about why Dunkin. Donuts, and that's you can find that on the site Extra Crispy. We're going to take a little break. We're uh, we're, we're not going to take a little break. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to take you, metaphorically speaking, to a different donut shop, not a chain, but a donut shop with which I have great, long-standing familiarity. 
So I have memories. They're sort of misty memories from, I guess, the early 1980s. Uh, there was a day where I was uh, early in the morning, kind of in the downstairs area of a very famous Avon donut shop, standing in a circle of people who were about to go to work and who were holding hands and praying. And there was a man leading the prayer, and he said, we asked the Lord to create a thirst for righteousness and a hunger for donuts. That man was Luke Sanford. Uh, Luke's donut shop was then already famous and a fixture in Avon. It still is. Uh, Luke has since that time left us, but his son, Colin Sanford, is joining us right now. So, Colin, uh, first of all, we should say you're a dentist at Avon Family Dentistry in Avon, uh, in addition to being uh, the son of Luke Sanford, former owner of Luke's Donuts in Avon. So you grew up around donuts. You know, I I knew your father reasonably well. I mean, this was, it was impossible to separate his Christian faith from donuts. So how did those two things come together, though, in the first place? Well, my father, when he came back from World War II, he was living in Ohio, and before he went to the war, he was a butcher. And when he came back from the war, another man asked him if he would like to open a donut shop with him in Connecticut. Why they chose Connecticut, I have no idea. But they came together to Hartford, Connecticut, and opened a donut shop. When it was first opened, it was called L&B. And then about a year later, my father bought him out. That was in 1947 that they came here and became Luke's Donut Shop ever since then. My dad had heart issues, worked too hard, worked too long, uh, never let people know that he had heart attacks. And one day when he was in the hospital, he sort of rededicated his life to the Lord. He'd come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior as a young person in East Liverpool, Ohio, And like so many, had sort of drifted away, but rededicated his life to the Lord. He said if the Lord would heal him, that his life would forever reaching out to him and telling other people about Christ's love through the donut shop. And so he made great donuts, but also for every person that came in that he had contact with, he reached out to people uh, with a love of Christ. Right. So praise the Lord was not only something that was said uh, to people as they purchased their donuts, but it was right on the box. Uh, Luke's Donuts, uh, praise the Lord. It was always kind of interesting, too, because there's an old saying from the war, there are no atheists in the foxholes, uh, and there's sort of no atheists in the donut holes in Avon in the sense that I'm sure people come into that shop all the time who believe whatever they believe or don't believe whatever they believe. They're from every possible faith or no faith at all. But there's some way in which the donuts are so good that, you know, everybody seems to be in a very good spirit. I I take it nobody ever objects to being told, praise the Lord, when they get their donuts. Not that I have ever heard. You know, my dad always sought to be the most honest, upright person that he could be with people, both in his personal life and in his donut life, and he made great donuts. And so just his whole personality was one where even though he would come on strong with people and tell them, they may may not agree with him, but they had enough respect for him that it never seemed to offend people, at least not to my knowledge. And, you know, I mean, there's there's something about donuts and conversation, right? There, and certainly Luke's Donuts is that way. It's, it's as famous for people sitting around chewing the fat as it is for eating donuts. Why, why do donuts and talking go together? I think it's the donuts and the coffee sitting together and people enjoying each other's company, sitting talking about solving the problems of the world or thinking they're solving the problems of the world. So some people would sort of say that a donut shop and a dentist are on opposite sides of the fence. Uh, how do you reconcile your current life with your, your <laughs> donut upbringing? My father always said, uh, he wrecked them, I fixed them. 
<laughs> That's a good one. It's hard to top your father on this. And to that end, I remember him very, very well. It was a long, long time ago, but I remember him very vividly. Uh, he was a local celebrity in, in Avon. That's not an exaggeration. And I assume to this day there's people walking into your dental practice and bringing up something that he either did or said. Yes. Many people still remember my dad and have the most positive things to say about him, what kind of influence he had in their lives whether it be the donut shop or church relationship or community relationship or little league, whatever the case may be, they just he had such a positive influence on them. When my children and grandchildren come to visit, we always take them to the donut shop to sit at the counter and have some Luke's donuts. Well, you know, what can I say, uh, Colin, other than praise the Lord uh, and thank you so much for share a few memories of Luke's donuts. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Colin. All right. I got to go floss now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good to me. Okay. Dunk in love, open all night, love, love, open all night, love. I have to ask, crueler than what? Today's show was glazed by Betsy Kaplan and frosted by me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish prefers a blueberry mackerel donut. Part of Bill Curry was played by David Lynch. And now, back to Colin. We had to segregate or sequester an entire segment of the show for, I think, one of the primal relationships in the universe of donuts, and that is the relationship between police and donuts. Now, in some ways, maybe it is the kind of this cliche or stereotype, which is comically exploited on The Simpsons and other shows. But behind most stereotypes, there's some kind of reality. And so, uh, first of all, I should say that Michael Crondall, in your book, The Donut, History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin, there is a segment called Cops and Donuts. And you really do sort of look at this. And it was it seems as though it was pretty easy to find cops, even famous cops like Frank Rizzo, who eventually became mayor and police chief of Philadelphia, who, would, who were happy to dilate upon the joys of law enforcement and donuts. Why do they go together? So when I first started looking into this, I thought this was just an urban legend, except that the problem with that was that I was writing an article and uh, I was interviewing some people and standing in a donut shop in Brooklyn. And there's a big line of people standing there, including six cops. And I asked the cops, so is there a reason that cops, have, you know, this large, burly cop, and I'm kind of this little guy, is there a reason that you guys are standing here for the donuts? And he looks at me as if a Weimaraner were looking down at a little lap dog and says, no, the donuts are just good here. <laughs> but I started in looking into this and talking to cops who were considerably older than the one I had spoken to. And yes, in the 1950s and 60s, donuts and cops were very tightly associated one with the other. And the explanation is fairly straightforward. When cops moved from being beat cops to driving around in patrol cars, which would have been, you know, post-Second uh, World War, there wasn't anywhere to get a cup of coffee at 2, 3 in the morning, mm -hmm. 4 in the morning. You know, you're on the midnight shift, you're on the graveyard shift, and his dawn is breaking, and you desperately need some caffeine and some sugar. Where do you go? Um, McDonald's isn't open. The diners aren't open yet. But what's open is, or rather, where there is a light is in the donut shops because the donut shops are open very, very early to cater to that morning breakfast crowd. And so they would stop by and there's a bunch of memoirs and I also spoke to people about this that in fact they would seek out the donut shops in the early hours of the morning 
I was speaking to a cop who had uh, worked in Oakland, you know, in the really bad old days. And he was saying that the officers would come in and look at the cops in the morning and they would just sort of joke, okay, that stain on your, that must be a joke, you know, a Boston cream. That stain, that one looks like a, a crawler. That stain, so they would have, have this ongoing kidding of the cops about what kind of donuts they ate. So, yeah, it's, it's for real. Right. And when we asked people to call in to our voicemail project, uh, we got uh, what we like to call voicemail number 10. Here's one from the perspective of the donut purveyor. I own my donut shop at the corner of Park and Prospect. Not once was I ever robbed. Why? Because the patrol sergeant, the patrol officers would come in, and then they would get chased out by the sergeants, and the sergeants would get chased out by the lieutenants, and the lieutenants would get chased out by the captains, and then he left, and five minutes later, well, all the patrol officers were back. I didn't give away free donuts or coffee, but... I never got robbed. I guess I must have had good coffee. Right. I think I know that guy, and I think it was a Mr. I'm pretty sure it was a Mr. Donut. It was a Mr. Donut, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. So we're adding to the conversation because we have to talk about maybe the most mystical law enforcement and donut relationships. So to help us do that, Frida Love Smith, drummer and founding member of the Blake Babies, lecturer at Northwestern University and the author of her food memoir, Red Velvet Underground. She's joining us to talk about a piece she wrote about Twin Peaks and donuts in one of her monthly columns for Paste Food. So Frida... You know, obviously, Agent uh, Cooper and Donuts, there's a way in which all of those stereotypes about rough-hewn, burly cops and their donuts are kind of smoothed out into this much more mystical surface. What's going on with Donuts and Twin Peaks? Well, it's really notable on Twin Peaks that you don't see a single donut actually outside of the Twin Peaks police department. So it's a really important part of establishing the identity of that place and of those people. And donuts are depicted really reverentially and yes, kind of mythically in the context of the police station. The donuts are simply a very, very good thing in the world of Twin Peaks. And interestingly, the police are also depicted totally benevolently. They're, the police are, are a pure force for good. They're totally good guys in, within this worldview, which is kind of a mythical worldview like all of David Lynch's work, of good versus evil. So the police are this kind of metaphysical force for good, and what fuels that force is is donuts. So it does give a little bit of mystique and power to, uh, to the good old donut. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit, too, and I read a couple of times in profiles of David Lynch. We should say that the uh, the only trailer for the new season of Twin Peaks was David Lynch eating a donut to the theme music. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, he certainly is not ready to break that tie between uh, this work and, no, and donuts. No, that was a very deliberate choice. Yeah. I and, and I read some. I read about him that he, in order to get inspiration, would frequent like a diner or a lunch counter or something like that, and then would, I think, drink coffee with like insane amounts of sugar in it, really insane amounts of sugar, and, and like how, do repeat this process a few times and then maybe have a milkshake or something. And he said, really, you know, after a while, you really get some great ideas popping in your head. And I was wondering about that. I, you've studied this more closely. I don't have a close read on this that you do. But I wondered if since so much of Dale Cooper's work, Agent Cooper's work, involves kind of sussing out 
connections that aren't necessarily linear that uh, and understanding problems, crimes, and, and relationships that exist at sometimes at the level of real life and then other times at this almost sort of quantum level of strangeness. Right, is, dream work and right. intuition. Is the donut connected to that somehow? Like that's a way in? I think that that there's something about the way food is depicted, that food is sort of grounded in this nostalgia for the 50s so that Food is a kind of the stabilizing force that then allows characters like like Agent Cooper to kind of go off on these tangents. So I feel like the food is almost like kind of a return to stability and to home, these very familiar everyday foods. Um, that And I think that there's something in those food habits of David Lynch's also of kind of eating the same thing and having these very regular rituals and routines that then seem to allow him to take these flights of imagination. So, Michael, I can remember when the original Twin Peaks was on and donuts were rendered cool uh, by this because it was just the hippest thing on television. There weren't that many hip things on television even mm-hmm. to compete with it. So, Michael Crondall, I'm, what I'm wondering is, are donuts cool right now? Are they enjoying any kind of hipster-driven artisanal re- re- renaissance or some other kind of renaissance now, Michael? They're so red hot that you know, they're <laughs> glowing. Um, I, I just want to throw in one thought there about the mystical element of donuts. You know, it isn't random that a halo is the shape of a donut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, d- donuts are the quintessential hipster food. If you're going to have the, the the facial hair and the tattoos, you have to be eating a donut with some artisanal brew to your side. There is no more hipster food than a donut. And I think this goes back to that street cred that a donut has. You know, because it is associated with the working class, with the proletariat, it isn't like a cupcake, which is a feed and effeminate. A donut, despite the fact that it has the most feminine shape in uh, pastry, pastryhood, somehow is acceptable uh, as a masculine treat. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, the, with the sort of or maybe the, because it's feminine. Um, never yeah. mind. Yeah. Well, and then we can just get into you know round donuts versus crawlers, and I think uh, pretty quickly you lose our, our FCC license and our train of thought. So, but Frida Love Smith, you are inherently cool, being drummer and founding member of the Blake Babies. Oh, I well, thank you. Um, so, are are you noticing a donut renaissance now, connected to Twin Peaks or not? I'm not sure if it's linked to Twin Peaks. I mean, I kind of argue that we might be seeing sort of a long-term result of of Twin Peaks being so hip and that maybe donuts will work their way into hipsterness because of that. But I do think that, yeah, I think donuts are everywhere. I think one thing that's kind of funny is like a donut is considered this sort of unhealthy piece of food, but now we're seeing gluten-free donuts and vegan donuts and people who kind of want to like have their donut and eat it too. And that seems really notable too because a donut was never something that you ate if you were concerned about uh, your, your health and nutrition. Right. I, I began this conversation, Frida, uh, uh, an hour or so ago uh, by saying that in a way, donuts to me seem like this kind of Bermuda Triangle of food watchfulness, that people who really are kind of careful about their diets and careful about what they eat, they just give themselves a free pass. If somebody brings a dozen donuts into work, that kind of person will take a donut, even if it's not gluten-free and made. You know, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Like what kind of monster would not eat a donut? So, yeah, <laughs> you're just going to do that. <laughs> 
And so, um, Michael, I do like your idea of halos, that the angels got together and said, what should we wear over our heads? Let's wear something that looks like a donut. People love donuts. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I think you quoted in your book, but my old friend Roy Blunt, when he was talking about Krispy Kreme donuts, said that the uh, relationship of Krispy Kreme donuts to a regular donut is essentially the relationship uh, between an angel and a human being. And so, I mean, Michael, are, are donuts religious in other ways? Do we know? Certainly, they were religious to the Salvation Army who was yes. handing them out you know, during the First World War. I mean, they were a form of host, if you will, yeah. uh, deep-fried host that they were distributing to, the, um, to their congregations. So, I mean, there is that relationship. Although, to be perfectly honest, that relationship, to go back to the beginning of the show, has been as much with the devil as it has been with you know, the angels. Um, they are considered indulgent and overindulgent. But the thing is, at least in Catholicism, you can't repent unless you've done something wrong. <laughs> the whole point of Fat Tuesday is that you have now Lent, so you, you have something to repent for. Well, yeah, so on that note, first of all, I think we should each of us go our separate ways and go have a donut so we'll have some kind of spiritual hole to climb out of. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, I want to thank you, Frida Love Smith. So good to uh, have you on Frida's piece about uh, Twin Peaks and Donuts in what appeared in one of her monthly columns for Paste food. Anchoring this whole conversation has been uh, Michael Crondall, author of The Donut, History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin. Anchoring uh, my mentation, as usual, has been producer Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Jonathan McNichol's been on the board. And we thank you for listening. We're going to go out with the music of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm.